0: Today's podcast delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when sending on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast. Now, time for the show.
1: Hello, you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. Fantastic to be back, Paul. Our guest this week back on the show for a second time uh, is noted economist Warren Hogan. Warren has just finished a stint at the Federal Treasury where he was Principal Advisor uh, in Sydney working across markets and macroeconomics. Uh, Before that, he was Chief Economist at ANZ Bank. Warren, it's great to have you back on the show. It's fantastic to be here. Let's get straight in. We had some nasty retail sales data uh, from the Australian Bureau of Statistics this week. Uh, sales contracted by a pretty significant 0.6% in August, when the market was expecting uh, an increase of 0.3. Cratering was the word used by UBS economists to describe <laughs> what happened. Um, now, for some context um, uh, for our listeners, you would expect to see small growth in retail sales on a monthly basis as the economy expands. Um, we're now looking at retail sales growth running at just around just over two percent, um, you know, compared to back where it was in the early two thousand six, seven, eight percent
2: on a year-on-year basis. So, Warren, does this concern you? No, it does c- quite deeply, uh, especially the, the movement in the last six months, and it, it runs at odds with some of the other indicators in the economy, uh, employment in particular, but is utterly consistent with low wages uh, growth, which we've, we've been seeing now for a while, and also uh, with the household debt story. So it, it's, it's 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 a worry... That it seems to be happening quickly, and I think that's what we've got to try and understand: is is the consumer really sort of going into a, a hole, or is is this just sort of a, a shift down to a lower rate of growth? It's not really what you
1: want to see when um, the consumer is and consumption is is well over half um, of all economic activity in Australia. Um, David, um, just some of the details in the um, in the, the the ABS data were were pretty shocking, weren't they?
0: Yes, it was a treasure trove of uh, ugly uh, statistics that were uh, were out of the report. Largest monthly decline since uh, March 2013, Uh, weakest annual growth uh, since, uh, I think it was July 2013, Uh, some really big declines in department stores, although over the month it actually rose, but uh, on year-and-year terms, they're looking down 10% or so. Um, Just really quite concerning, particularly, you know... On top of what we saw in August, there was also a down revision to uh, to July's figures. So they were revised down to minus 0.2%. Uh, so really, this really steep deceleration and actual contraction in August. So uh, it's it's a little bit concerning, uh, and it makes you wonder about that strength we saw in retail sales, you know, in the uh, the June quarter. Was that due to primarily you know, weather disruptions that were causing people to go and replace uh, household goods and whatnot? Because the trend, apart from those couple of really strong months, has been very weak for the uh, the entire year. And uh, just thinking back to it, because this was data for August, and
1: Certainly um, in Sydney, um, and I think in Brisbane, you know, it it wasn't like there was really terrible weather or Mm -hmm. anything. Uh, You know, it was a beautiful winter in Sydney. Uh, It was very dry. Um, But, you know, people would have been out and about, um, you know, doing activities. Mm -hmm. And you would hope, you know, the tourism uh, activity that we're seeing, all of those, you know, a million visitors from China coming you think that would be feeding into decent retail sales uh, mm. growth, yeah. um, and but um, it just doesn't appear to be happening. A range of factors
2: were in mm, at play. Yeah. No, there is, and the, the the one I'm sort of interested to see if we can get more clarity on over the next few months is the energy story. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in the last uh, three or four months, a lot of publicity around energy costs, and the bills don't come in very often. So you know maybe people are starting to see a few bills, and with all the press coverage and the political coverage, uh, maybe that's playing a role. I mean, we've had a, a, a declining trend, uh, and David, if, tell me if I'm wrong, but we, we, we've had four of the last six months negatives. Correct. And then we've got this declining trend accelerating. If this is not statistical, if this is not sampling error, then this is the sort of dynamic you'd see in an economy that is going into a hole. Now, I'm pretty sure there is a lot of statistics too. The acceleration down in the last month but it isn't a good good sign Um, and retail sales is uh, just under half of consumption which makes it you know just under a quarter of GDP the consumer is the core of the economy it's it's the part of the economy in terms of economic growth that is stable it doesn't move around a lot everything else is very volatile whether it's housing business investment inventories all swing around through the cycle a lot yeah your yeah, anchor, if you will, is the consumer, and if that is giving way, mm. then you know it's a real worry. Especially with employment growth the way it's been. I mean, and I mean,
0: and population growth as well. That's and that's another massive important factor that you've got to consider too. Like, you no, know, you're looking at population growth, which is quite high at the moment, and even with that, we're still seeing you know, nominal retail sales up 2.1. That's very weak. Another thing I, I saw, also saw in the performance of services index that came out from the AI group. I think it was released uh, yesterday. They showed that the consumer orientated sectors so you 're talking about retailers cafes restaurants uh, tourism tourism um, suffering some of the biggest contractions on record uh, over the course of September so this is obviously we 're talking about August retail sales this is a snapshot of what happened in September, so it must go and create a few butterflies and a few nerves that know this could well be something that's becoming entrenched. Mm. Certainly did. uh, When I saw
1: the number from the ABS and the retail sales that I was a bit shocked. I I could genuinely feel the the shock setting in because the lowest uh, call from any economist um, was a a fall of 0.3 and the market median expectation was for a growth of 0.3. Now I know they sound like small numbers, but to your, to the point that both of you have just been making, this seems to be a trend that may be starting to gather some momentum. Mm. Um, one other little bit of, um, of data that we saw, so we had very good trade numbers, mm-hmm. um, uh, but there was a fall of $190 million in consumer goods and consumer inputs, mm. uh, imports, mm. pardon me. Um, so that also is, you know... It, Utterly consistent with that story. Yeah. 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 Um, so, um, Warren, what are the things that can be done to try and... Um, try and try? Because we can't see the RBA doing anything.
2: Um, no. Well, they're certainly not going to cut rates. Um, it does put a big question mark over you know, monetary tightening in the short term, and particularly given that the... Two big housing markets look like they're a bit softer in the last few weeks, but you know, early days. The big issue here is, from the work I've done, is looking at household spending, looking at consumption. We've had a dip down in the household saving rate in the last few years, and we need to think about. And that's sort of been there to support consumption. So, you know, the, the sort of theoretical basis of this is is, in, is consumption smoothing, is you know, permanent income hypothesis type stuff. And this is a classic case of short-term consumption smoothing when your income falls but you don't expect it to last you save less and you you prop up your lifestyle the last thing to go is you know your living standard Um, but the theory tells you eventually if your income's not going to go back to the kind of growth rates we've seen in the past if we're in a world of two percent income growth not four then people will cut their lifestyle because then they've got to think about the longer term consumption smoothing issue which is saving for retirement um, and on that one, the interesting point, which is sort of operating the other way, is that compared to the pre-GFC period, so the 20 years leading up to 2008, um, Australians aren't spending the wealth gains like they used to. Mm. So the, the level of wealth, uh, real wealth growth we've seen in Australian households in the last few years would actually tell you the savings rate should be less, it should be more like 2%, given the relationship that existed pre-GFC. That's not happening. So. Look, I think the, the risk is, is that income growth remains permanently lower than it was in the past. Consumers finally register that and they cut their spending, which might be what we're seeing. But on the offset, the good news is that there's a bit of wealth uh, sitting in the background, which you know will, will stop too much of a panic. But mm. then that brings in the next leg of this thing is the housing market. And at the moment, it's doing well as a general proposition, both in terms of construction, pricing, access to credit. It's pretty good, apart from a bit of macro pro here and there. But over the next couple of years, if housing rolls over, which most people expect it to do, that wealth effect might sort of not start working the other way. Yeah, and then you're starting to get a very, uh, you're stacking up a
1: lot of very concerning issues.
2: Well, with the household debt levels that we've got in this country, which are pretty much globally unprecedented, um, historically unprecedented, Uh, we're in uncharted territory from... 175%, I think, um, of... um, It's phenomenal. yeah. Yeah. There's lots of different ways to measure it, but those are the orders of magnitude. But we've never seen it before. And, you know, it's obviously a, a whole series of decisions by private individuals, but you read the papers these days and you're seeing more and more stories of financial literacy issues, people, you know, complaining to the financial ombudsman about, you know, I think there's this picture getting painted of, do people really know what commitments they're getting into with this debt? This is long-term debt. It's mortgage debt. Well, UBS had a had a uh, report <coughs> during the week. Um, uh, they've uh,
1: been looking at... Some various issues to do with um, with mortgage lending. Um, they have this term "liar loans," um, which uh, they've coined, which is basically people overstating or you know not putting entirely factual information. Putting into them. it all in there, yeah. Um, and their their latest instalment in this is that they reckon there are billions and billions of dollars uh, that are in in mortgages that people think is. Uh, interest uh, and principal, mm. when in fact they're interest only. Mm. So they're not getting the gains, um, the the equity um, that they would
2: that they think they're
1: building up. Yeah, well, um, they're not
2: building it up themselves. They're relying on the uh, appreciation the underlying asset, mm. which you know may not be happening from here on in if we've reached a peak in the in the house price cycle. Sure, and uh, I just in my own. My own
1: neighbourhood. So we live in Petersham in the inner west, right? One of the areas that has seen pretty spectacular median house price growth over the years. Um, just to clarify, we only bought a couple of years ago, so we, we haven't uh, ridden the oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, you're riding it, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was one of the. I think one of the issues there was supply, right? So the you know it's a small neighbourhood, and you, over the last couple of years, you haven't seen that many houses for sale. Maybe there's one a month uh, in our sort of couple of blocks. Um, just the last couple of weeks, I've seen three, four houses with the for sale signs going up, and it's with those little things that are just like, oh, actually, this is visibly changed. Mm. I,
0: I can vouch for that as well. I went for a walk around uh, Alexandria and, uh, and Surrey Hills around where I live and I have noticed there's been a marketed increase in the number of properties that are hitting the market at once. So that's another one of those signs that a lot of people are starting to think, well, maybe this is the top. Uh, and obviously, we saw some data from CoreLogic uh, earlier this week as well, which showed Sydney prices in nominal terms fell for the first time in I think 17 months or so. So there is one of those. You know, obviously, a few people are you know, trying to go and time this thing, and are maybe a little bit concerned that it's run too hard, too fast, particularly with uh, the macro proof that, that Warren was talking about as well, with that investor side of the market, you now slowing things up quite considerably. Mm.
1: So one of the things, obviously, Warren, you touched on this, is wages growth, um, super important. Uh, for people to feel like they can get ahead and that they've got a bit of control over their future, et cetera. But, you know, when growth is 2%, wages is, you know, 2%, and, you know, inflation is just a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's, that's troubling for people. Um, I've written before that I think businesses need to really start thinking about this and thinking about how do we, you know, we have had this big divergence um, in uh, household income growth versus profits, um, usually they tend to go alongside each other. They certainly did during the mining boom. Great wealth uh, mm-hmm. inflow down, right down um, through all sections of society, um, with the all the money that came in. Um, terms of trade that happened. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, we had the terms of trade spike um, that we've seen over the last year or so, but that did not translate to wages growth and. Granted, it was short-term, very sort of cyclical, um, but uh, there is a big question now. I mm. think Warren, and you tell me what you think about. You know, how do we, is there any possible way um, that apart from businesses just saying, okay, we're going to eat some profit, mm. um, uh, some profit growth, and hand it back to um, to workers? Mm. Um, but is there anything else do you think that can um, can help turn that that story around?
2: Well, I think you you're one of the the forces at work, particularly here in Australia, is the business sector focusing on the cost line to generate economic value add. The the revenue growth's not there. This has been the case for many years. It's been evident in America for a decade. Really pushing down on, on costs. Now, that comes in two forms. One is just outright cost control, cutting workforce, cutting investment, or not spending new investment. And the other one's productivity. And you hear a lot of stories about companies in Australia, and I'm sure overseas, who a lot of their investment is into into activities that are going to reduce their cost base rather than grow their revenue base. You know, there's a big application of the way new technology is being utilised. So that's definitely at play, and, and, and I'm, I'm not sure that that's necessarily run its course. If you get a big sort of kick up in growth and revenue start to grow, maybe there'll be some backing off of that. Here in Australia, I think there's another issue that I think sometimes gets lost in the debate, is that at the top of the mining boom the Australian labour costs measured in a common currency were the most expensive in the world mm. uh, from the data I've seen looking at sort of 20 major economies. Um, and we, we, we're sort of in a process of cheapening our labour market up. And the Aussie dollar falling has done a, a, a big part of that um, in, in, in the sort of initial downturn in the terms of trade. But really, we, we, you know, we have to keep wages growth quite modest for an extended period to bring us back into line with countries like the United States and Europe, Mm. and let alone the emerging economies. So I think that's important. And then there's this ubiquitous automation issue, which gets back to the cost-cutting issue, but it's more than just cost-cutting. It's about replacing labour with capital. Now, longer term, I think this is critical. With ageing populations, rising dependency ratios, we need robots and automation to help Produce what we have as a society for less people working, but in the short term right now it could be uh, a factor that 's holding back not just sort of employment um, but also uh, wage wage growth and p- politically there is just it is completely
1: unpalatable. it 's a very very difficult uh, conversation to drive politically um, around moderating wages growth um, you know because people. Obviously are looking for ways to get ahead, um, and this will be absolutely a something that's very much on the minds uh, I'm sure of um, Malcolm Turnbull uh, and Bill shorten in in terms of how they think about their their strategy over the next year um, h- How do you get mm. people to get in behind you um, but whereas you know the, what the economy might need is this as you say moderation in in wages growth
2: um, which we're kind of going through um, But um, people are angry about it. Yeah, and, you know, one of the key outcomes for government is living standards. So you're not going to get too many politicians talking about uh, um, dropping wages. Um, Unless, of course, we've got the problems we had in the 70s and 80s with, you know, excessive inflation and that was causing big problems. But, you know, the, the, the... I've heard some people say we should just sort of come in and, you know, some sort of policy that makes all the big corporations increase wages. I mean, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, don't think so. It's going to have a whole series of unintended consequences not least higher unemployment, mm. um, or likely um, higher unemployment. So the market's got to sort itself out. Um, Australia's a small, open economy. We're playing in a big, big global economy. Actually, another factor that's a long-term factor, but in the last 20 years, these emerging economies have effectively brought a lot of new labour into the into the global system. Now, that... Could be sort of as a, again this you know this international substitution, offshoring, outsourcing, all this sort of thing. So, I think we're going to. I personally have the view that we should be um, expecting a cyclical shift up in wages if the economy improves. Which, given what we're talking about with retail sales, doesn't look like it's happening. But say in America at the moment, mm. a cyclical shift up in wages, but that shift up will be to a much lower level than we saw than what we've seen in the last twenty years. We're going to have a much lower rate of wages growth in line with a lower rate of nominal growth in the economy. One of the questions for the
1: Australian economy uh, has been, and it's been a big talking point for years now, has been the levels of business investment, Um, particularly as we move into this period where there's going to be, um, you know, increasing global competition. Um, You know, there's a question with the low levels of business investment, are Australian companies now positioned to compete Mm -hmm. um, uh, on this, uh, at this global level? And I saw there was some just data out from the RBA which... Um Sam Jacobs wrote about it um, on business Insider this week um but just a bit of an overview of the twen- trends in business investment going back over the last twenty years or so um obviously very evident that business investment has been weak um but it's notable in that data that it, from the r b a that the interest rate bills for business have been significantly declining um as a proportion of profits um and uh it you know that so they have been able to you know lower their interest rate um their bills so Bo- helps boost their profitability, mm. we still have this question of very, very low levels of investment mm.
2: relative to what would be... Um, well, low out- interest rates should be encouraging investment, cheap funding. Which exactly what mean. they... yeah doesn't seem to be of, happening. No, or to go, go and
0: issue debt to go and buy back your stock because it's cheaper.
2: Yeah, No. and that's the financial aspect of all mm. of this. Uh, high dividend payout ratios, share buybacks. It's all about getting uh, greater, greater share, shareholder value outcomes. Yeah, and the pressure from shareholders
1: to keep delivering those dividends. Um, the famous one was Telstra a few weeks ago. says it's going to hold on to some of the dividend um, and reinvest it in its own future because it needs to transform and get itself fit for future. Mm. Um, and, of course, you know, the stock's down 10%. Mm. Um, like, okay, well, it's not going to pay me that much anymore. Yoink. Um, I'll take I'll take my money elsewhere, mm. um, which is really interesting. I, I, m- I must say, though, like I... Good on Telstra, um, you know, um, maybe trying to drive a bit of this conversation. Um, I think looking at those business investment data during the week, I find it a little bit disappointing. Um, you know, business always asks the community and, and politicians to get in behind its projects, et cetera. Um, and of course, look, some businesses have been doing some great things, taking some risks. Um, but when you roll it all up, the data is very clear. Um, business investment has been weak. Um, so i I do find it a little bit um disappointing um from a bit you know business has been told for years Glenn Stevens famously um calling on businesses to unleash. Their animal spirits, yeah, specifically
0: non non mining businesses. I think we're obviously you had the uh, the, the mining investment boom, and then uh, obviously we've seen the, uh, the aftermath of that's been quite a bit. I think this is uh, the the non mining sectors of the economy where it's uh, it's still a little bit uh, less than what I think people would want to see at this point in the cycle.
2: Yeah. yeah, and it's look, it's a pretty important issue, and I've done a fair bit of work on this in the in the last little while. So just on the, the headline stats, and it is non mining business investment we need to worry about because the mining side is big in this country and has its own you know unique factors. You know, China mainly, of course. But the non-mining business investment as a share of GDP is sort of between nine and ten percent, which is essentially where it gets to in recession. Nineteen ninety-two, nineteen eighty-one, we are at recession levels for non-mining business investment. But the economy is not in recession. The economy is growing quite at a, quite a healthy clip. I, well, I believe it's a healthy clip around sort of two and a half, three percent. So why aren't businesses investing? Look, there's a whole range of explanations um, that can that are plausible. Um, the big one is the sort of shift to capital light industry, you know, the rise of services, new technologies, you know, you don't need as much machinery. And it is plant and equipment, the plant and equipment component of business investment that's the weak bit. In fact, in the last couple of years, I think we've dropped to our depreciation rate. We're not even replacing or only just replacing mm. what we've got in terms of the stock of capital, capital stock. Now that shift in the sort of the the structure of the economy, I think, is is a, is a factor. Um, but I think you know we need to look at this non mining uh, mining issue, and it's critical from a geographic point of view. That is Queensland, WA, regional areas, city areas. There's a big shift, and we all know this. These these are trends going all through the economic data. Stark here, non mining business investment in Queensland and Western Australia is in a hole. Mm. And that's what's driving the national outcomes. Now, Victoria and New South Wales aren't looking like they're setting the world on fire, which in some indicators like infrastructure investment and so forth, they are. But they are growing. They are experiencing a cyclical recovery. So if the Australian economy was just New South Wales or just Victoria, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Now, that gives us some reason for optimism medium term, because clearly what's happening is the downturn in mining investment is having spillovers in to non-mining, you know, in parts of these regional areas, they're shutting up shops and not reinvesting in, you know, retail or in light manufacturing or, or whatever it is. So hopefully that'll go. Um, there's no doubt that businesses are always worried about the amount of regulation and red tape. And small business, which isn't insignificant, uh, an insignificant component of business non mining business investment, also point to a, uh, access to credit as an issue. And that is, I think, a big issue. You Not know, interesting. The, well, small business are in the same boat as consumers. We have four big banks, I know, and we have peripheral competition. But really, you know, from the bank's perspective, small business like retail are sticky. There's big margins, big return on equity, key driver of economic value add for the banks is not just their consumer businesses, their retail businesses, but their small business lending and small business activities. So the margins are big, which means effectively the cost of finance to small business in Australia is this high compared to, to big business because you know, they've got to take what they can get from the financial system. So look, there's a whole range of issues. complicated. My sense... Is to paint a narrative. We had a mining boom, which really sort of crowded everything out. The big one it crowded out was was cons- residential construction. Then that took up the the mantle along with infrastructure in non mining type activities, and we're seeing that in New South Wales in particular, but in other states. And then the question is, what's next? What's after the the sort of the rolling over of this east coast construction boom? And that's where you want to sort of see the non mining business investment pick up. Now, mm. I can't tell you, I can't point to anything that tells you that's going to happen, but maybe just it's it's just going to sort of start to build some momentum over the next few years yeah
1: and it's for those um those types of industries that you would hope would be you know central to the future of the, the country you know we need to be able to have these you know avoid going from these this lurch from giant you know mining levels of investment which uh forced the rba um back in the 2000s to to lift interest rates stand on the throat of the rest of the economy mm-hmm. um but, um you know, but then that happened, and you know slashing rates then really, really quickly, mm-hmm. um, and then running over and like well, let's get the construction boom going um, with um China, which we'll talk about shortly, with China looking um at, at where it is, and it's a big question about where mm-hmm. um uh, how Chinese demand for commodities is going to look over the next couple of years um, but uh you know if you take away that might if there's no if we have problems with the on the commodity price side. On the commodity demand side, if we have problems there and the construction element has softened, the way it's starting to look now, um, then uh, you know you just kind of wonder: well, where are the other companies? Mm. Um, what are the other big industries? Sure, agriculture, um, something like six percent of GDP. You weren't right.
2: Yeah, well, it's, that is small. It's, it's interesting you say that. It's it's, it's for macroeconomists who are focused on particularly financial markets but aggregate outcomes, you know, one of the things we hated getting questions on was you know, well, where is the investment going to come? It was real industry economic stuff, which you know, most macroeconomists aren't very good at. And Glenn Stevens, I mean, I'm, you could just tell he had, he's had the same uh, challenges, but uh, Glenn Stevens, I think Phil Lowe as well said, well, we don't know exactly what those businesses are going to be, but we sort of know that you know, the economy's flexible, it's well-functioning, they'll come. Like the big one there for me is new technology and new industries. And, you know, we're going to find out how good Australia is. We know lots of stories. That a lot of the talent is going overseas. You know, obviously California is a huge um, drain. Parts of Asia are as well. And the capital is 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 trickier here, although I think there's a lot of good news out there. But that's the thing I think, you know, is going to be the future of non-mining business investment mm. is, you know, how do we... Uh, what are the new industries coming through? And clearly, there's the big ships. There's health. There's aged care. Um, now, there's a lot around services, but what are they? It's hard to tell.
1: Yeah, it's going to be certainly going to be interesting. <music> You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia, and uh, here with David Scott and Warren Hogan, uh, who's back on the show. Great to have you here, Warren. Um, so, look, we've just looked at um, Australia. We touched quickly on China, um, but there is a big development coming mm-hmm. um, that um, probably warrants more attention than it's been than it's been getting, uh, and that's the, um, the the National Party Congress um, uh, in in China, um, where we'll see the, um, the the, the the PM and the president um, their power base um, they'll be looking to consolidate their power base and give themselves a platform um, for for the years ahead.
2: Um, what will you be looking at for? Aaron? Well, it's a, it's a, a key medium term medium term being five year sort of policy uh, platform, um, which is always important uh, in the last. Um, plan. They talked a lot about financial reform, a lot about the transition of the economy and a lot of what that meant. The one thing I think that gave us a lot of optimism back then was the issue of uh, reform of state-owned enterprises. And that was really the the weak link. As it turned out, they didn't do a lot on that front. Um, So look, we'll see what their their objectives are. I think growth targets, industry targets, the transition. But really... What's important here, which is unique, is whether there's a political shift. So this is Chinese democracy. That is, they don't have a democracy like we know, it, where everyone votes. What they do is they have a party, and then you vote within the party. Yep. And you just got a feeling that Chinese democracy is weakening, in the sense that mm. there's a lot of talk around Xi um, strengthening his position, um, he's, this is his last term, five-year term, and that's part of their cycle, that's part of their democracy, that's part of their process that they turn leadership over. But there's obviously a lot of talk that he's going to hold on to it for longer. Now, whether that's a permanent thing or just longer, we don't know. But if that does happen, that is significant. That is massive, uh, in my view, both politically and economically. The political issues um, are, are huge, and we, we're not really here to talk about those. So the economic issue is 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 this, in my mind. And that is, he's shored up his power, he's shored up the party's power and has you know the, the, the control, and now they can get on with the transition. They're worried about the consequences of uh, taking capital out of the old industries, the unemployment that comes with it, and freeing it up to go into the new industries, which is never a seamless exercise, particularly in an economy with 1.3 billion people. Um, it's all about letting markets and the private sector direct economic activity, which, you know, is not something that's been happening much in China uh, in the last 50 years, and of course, the, the sort of the, the key plank of their rapid industrialization has been state-guided capital deployment, and, and this is all, all, all about shifting really to a more market-based economy. They've flagged it, of course, we all know the story, but they're just dawdling on it, and I think they're dawdling on it um, because the the, the transition um, will involve lower growth. They're not going to get their 2020 targets... Um, in, in undertaking a uh, concerted shift in the in the structure of the economy, sure. shifting towards domestic markets.
1: So what might, might we be looking at, Dave? So what, um, currently, what are we, 6.7%, 6.9%?
0: 68 I think it was, in the uh, in the June quarter, and probably somewhere around about the same for the September quarter. I think we'll find out next week what there it usually are. usually comes uh, in pretty close to it. Yeah, we're very uh, good, or just all 0.1% above. Yeah, generally around that, that sort of mark. But yeah, longer term, I'm looking forward to it. There'll, there'll be a lot of talk about uh, the reforms that they'll be looking to push through and whatnot. It's always an industry event, but I always think the proof's in the pudding. I like they're going to go and see, after they go and announce these reforms, actually let the market forces take a greater control. Um, we saw the uh, the start of 2016, they started going down that path of allowing market forces to have a greater control over the economy. And then, obviously, the economy started quite sharply, and the, the first thing they did was roll out the uh, old tried-and-trusted method of you know, state-backed uh, infrastructure investment, property, you know, cut interest rates, house prices to the moon, um, didn't really fill anyone uh, with confidence who's looking for a longer term, you know, solid transition for the uh, the Chinese economy. So for me personally, whilst there'll be plenty of uh, you know, grandeur and, uh, and everything else in this event uh, and outlining the plan for the next five, ten years and, and Xi's legacy that he will leave, uh, I think more so it'll be important once these reforms start being implemented fully. Uh, to see what happens when the economy starts to go and slow. So let's talk about the potential uh, impact on Australia here because um, there's a lot of different moving
1: parts, um, but they are by far our biggest trading partner, 23%, I think, of of all of our trade, maybe a little bit more, which is just huge. Um, It's massive. um, Like, I think the next biggest, if you you use the United States, um, I think it's about nine.
2: So how do do you see... Well, we're we're, we're leveraged to this China model. So, you know, when Xi's dawdling on state-owned enterprise reform and propping up, you know, infrastructure and heavy industry to keep the economy on track for their targets, it's good for Australia because they need more metal um, (laughs) to do that. But if they transition successfully, their their need for metal will go down. So not only will you see um, the economy slow and the growth rate should come down... I believe, a few percentage points over the next five to seven years. Probably sub-five would be a more sustainable level. But the parts of the economy that Australia is quite uh, exposed to are going to slow by even more substantially. So I'm not too worried about um, volumes. I think that that they can be redirected if there really is a slowdown in China. But I think China will probably still take a fair bit of metal, but it it probably won't seem much new investment. Um, and of course, prices. I um, probably we've probably seen the best of prices. G, if he I, I'm, for me, it's it's a simple sort of line. But if G takes on more power with uh, more term, that may give them the confidence to undertake this economic transition, which will have negative economic consequences. But they if they feel they can manage those, if he if he, well, both him and the party are are strong. Uh, then, then I think that's when you get the slower growth. And I think that's something that Australia is very exposed to. What do you think, Dave, Um the outlook for, for
1: China now? What will you particularly be watching for?
0: Geez, well... From an Australian perspective, you've got to always look at uh, commodity demand and prices. You know what they intend to go and do, but uh, there is still a lot of uh, uncertainty in relation to what they'll do. I was, it wouldn't surprise many people who watch China closely that, you know just before this event starts, you know I saw their PMIs and there are uh, their services PMI both hit multi-year highs. So, you know whether it's actually activity on the ground that's measuring or you know what the, uh, the government wants you to go and hear and think. Uh they've they're definitely priming the economy to go and look like it's this grand beast now as they head into this event. But you no, know, much is gonna be happening afterwards. And you no, know, whilst the outlook for the commodity sector is probably not gonna be as bullish as what we've seen over the past decade, there'll still be demand. Uh ASEAN uh countries in particular are gonna require a lot of uh resources to go and uh, and build their infrastructure and they're probably the next link after uh, after Japan uh, after Japan and into China, then uh ASEAN will probably be one of those things. India is another one as well. Um, another one that just sits out to me is the, uh, is the agricultural sector. You know, anyone who's been to China, any of the big cities, I know the food there is, uh, is, is okay at best, uh, and you pay through the nose through, especially in the bigger cities. So you know, high-quality, cheapish food is an absolute marketplace that will boom in the, uh, in the decades ahead. So for me, Australia's opportunity sits there, you know, northern Australia in particular, right on Asia's doorstep. I was uh,
1: talking to somebody um, today who um, <clears throat> looks at blockchains and distributed ledgers, et etc, and one of the things that they 're looking at uh, is specifically in this agriculture thing is um, a way of using blockchains to track the provenance of uh, grain or say beef mm. um, and that you can that when it arrives to you, you know exactly where it 's come from, possibly what the weather conditions were like when it was being grown. Um, you know, you know what truck it took, what port it left from, because mm. uh, it's all tracked in this uh, in, 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 in through the various contracts that get executed on the on the blockchain, which is fascinating mm. uh, because obviously Chinese, uh, the vast and growing, rapidly growing middle class, um, you know, they like this stuff. They they like high quality.
2: Australia's high quality uh, agricultural. Um, Australia, uh, New Zealand, they're real premium products over there and uh, there's a lot of stories you hear about a lot of non-Australian and non-New Zealand product being labelled Australian and New Zealand and sold at that premium, Yeah, right. and that doesn't help us. Mm. New Zealand Inc has had a clear strategy to try and get that premium in their agricultural product because they're so dependent on it, and rightly so. They've got a great quality product. They've had a few hiccups in a few sectors, but we haven't been as explicit, Um, but we need to at the very least protect Quality of our brand and the value that it represents, because we do, as a country, spend a lot of money on biosecurity, um, and also we have this potential, as David said. I think I think that's fantastic if they can pull it off, but I think just you know making the Chinese authorities sort of crack down on this stuff uh, at, at the basic labelling sort of level. <laughs> well, don't think you need distributed ledger to do this. No, <laughs> I think I think you're seeing that in, in this country where you're seeing a lot more. Sort of awareness of where the where the food comes from, and I think that's wonderful technology. But China's got to get the basics right, and we do stand to benefit from it. Yeah,
1: um, we will finish on um, a, an upbeat note. Um, I've got the uh, I've got the global PMIs uh, in front of me. Uh, this synchronized upswing um, that uh, everybody's been talking about the last few months, uh, it's, and it's really amazing. Like, so the global um, manufacturing PMI, this is from JP Morgan, is at fifty three point two. Then developed markets, it's 54.8, very, very strong.
0: Just a quick reminder that above 50 means that activity levels are expanding. Yeah. And the distance from 50 uh, reflects the rate of expansion. Sounds like you've been reading a few of my articles, Colbert.
1: (laughs) (laughs)
2: Uh, uh, Is that a post-crisis high, those numbers? As I know, the US ISM, which is one of the best indicators of the US economy historically, it was it? a
0: twelve-year high last yeah, twelve-year high in, uh, in September. So it's absolutely chugging along. Yeah, the the, the, the composite PMI is uh, for the global is currently in fifty-four. So that's uh, you know tied to the two and a half year high. So. So no, yeah. things are looking very strong, and, and more importantly on this occasion, and this is the encouraging thing, is that in the past we had readings that were around this level, but it was driven by one nation or one block in particular, so it might have been the United States, it might have been China, but on this occasion it's broad-based, uh, and even in Australia, surprisingly enough, uh, ours have been uh, doing very strongly uh, recently. So, you no, know, things are all... Moving in the in the right direction at the same time, which is an encouraging sign. But of course, you know, we're not sure exactly what that's going to mean in the future. New orders looks very solid in those reports as well, so that's a good forward indicator. But you uh, know, moving into 2018, you know, we've got you uh, know geopolitics, everything else in between that could go and uh, and upset this. So. You know, we'll see how it goes. But for the time, things are looking very nice.
1: And Warren's so a, de- a, de- a decisive shift in, in tone really is mm. at the global level. I know right there's out. a lot of these issues that we been talking about, challenges specific to Australia,
2: mm. um, but it, um, the global outlook really has picked up. Yeah, it? And you can't underestimate how important that broad global outlook is for Australia. We've just talked about our key sort of trading partner in China, that's fine, but the non-mining economy, for lack of a better word, the broad Australian economy, which most of us participate in, is still mainly linked to the global advanced economy cycle, or another way to say that is the US. The US <laughs> ISM at a post-crisis high, I think two things I want to comment on there. One, fifty expansion contraction line, don't worry about too much of that. You get a, a soft landing at 48 and recessions, forty-two. Oh, this thing is miles away from anything. Mm. It is the U.S. economy is picking up. The other one is to remember back about all the work that was done just in that sort of immediate few years after the crisis, and all the reference to how financial crises take longer than normal recessions to get over. Ten years after the crisis, maybe we are getting over it. Now I think there's still some secular or structural issues which are going to mean growth lower than they were pre-crisis, particularly debt levels and demographics. But cyclically, maybe this is now the synchronized upturn. You know, mm. David just referred to the desynchronized movements we've had at various times. So maybe we're getting that. In which case, um, this is momentum. You know, these things yeah. don't disappear in a few months. So this could take us right through eighteen, and it's it's really important for this country because the conversation we started this podcast with about the Australian oh. consumer is looking fragile. And that international backdrop will be really important to sort of help keep us in the game, so to speak. Absolutely, yeah. and improves demand for some of those other exports, like art, that tourism, and um, you know, and confidence. Hmm. Got to remember the massive stock of foreign investment in this country, or sorry, the massive of the stock of foreign investment in this country is American. Uh, China is obviously investing a lot, but they're tiny in terms of what's sitting here in this economy. Most. Foreign capital sitting in this economy is American, so and then European, and so what those economies are doing, the decisions made in corporate boardrooms, mm. the sentiment in those businesses, which things like ISMs are some sort of picking up, gets its way down here, and uh, particularly for economies like New South Wales and Victoria,
1: and it, you know it's really clear. Um, I mean, just looking around, all the countries like f- you know Germany, France, looking very strong, um, you know um, Japan, looking in pretty good health too. Um, no inflation, but that's a, another question. Yeah. But, uh, Europe,
0: Europe has been the key thing this year. Europe has come to the party. Whereas, you know, in the past we had uh, China, then we had the United States following China. Uh, this year, the big is, is, is the Eurozone. Eurozone is big in the United States economy in aggregate size. Um, uh, and it's come to the party. It's really been uh, chugging along nicely. So that's a, a good sign as well. And you know. with those three, you know, readings, three uh, nations or Improving at the same time, it does offer a pretty good out drop, uh, outlook for the, uh, for the global economy.
1: Do, do you think, Warren, that this is a sign that all of this
2: unconventional monetary policy has finally uh, worked? No. Uh, the unconventional monetary policy, particularly the actions taken in the immediate wake of the GFC, worked. They stopped a depression. Um, everything since has is- sort of been management, uh, in my view, and you can have lots of different debates about you know the need for negative interest rates. So you go with QE, and the Japanese holding their long term rates at a level. The fact that it's taken so long, if indeed this does turn out to be the big sort of cyclical recovery, and that you know recoveries from financial crisis take eight years, not five, and all this sort of thing, and this is what's happening, then it's actually not much different to anything we've seen in the past. Um, it's just it takes time to repair. Um, so look, I think QE is still the, the jury's out. The unintended consequences of this are vast. Mm. Um, some of them are occurring, but we don't fully know what they are. What what what, um, what do you think? Uh... Look, the big one for me is is, is capital allocation. So the first port of call for QE is going in and, and taking the private sector away from the government bond market. Now, <coughs> excuse me, the government bond market is one of the key. Components of a long-term investment portfolio. So if you're sort of in there and forcing private capital into other areas, you're going to start to see um, shifts in where money's going. So the big one is infrastructure. There's been a huge accumulation of money for infrastructure investment and and some of the industry contacts I've spoken to in recent years have said that only half of that's deployed, that definitions of what infrastructure are broadening and that you've got a lot of money that should be in infrastructure that's essentially sitting in cash, which is... That's another way of saying just sort of stuck in the banking system. So that's not efficient in my view. It's good that we're getting funding for infrastructure, but it's, it's, we've we got overfunding. Uh, the other one is that it's creating this huge demand for yield, uh, i.e. bond-like characteristics. And, you know, we're seeing corporate dividend payout ratios at record highs and this sort of thing, which might be one of the headwinds to business investment, particularly in this country. So we don't fully know it's going to take time. These are sort of big structural and well, some could argue um, cyclical but they're big issues that are going to take many years to sort of pinpoint the exact causes but i i, I still think QE was a massive intervention in what is an otherwise broadly you know market economy and, mm-hmm. and then that, that it had its role but it's, it's not going to be we're not going to get away scot-free let's see how we unwind it the americans are starting it's going to be interesting you know to see if that any
0: disruptions. Yes, the liquidity tide is about to go and uh, start heading out and we're going to find uh, which uh, sectors have been uh, you know, pumped full of QE juice and which haven't uh, you No, know, market valuations are going to start getting questioned. No, it won't be straight away but uh, certainly next year, the year after you know, the ECB is already making noise about you know, tapering their asset purchases. That's, that's lining up for you know, a gradual reduction in the years ahead for their QE. Bank of Japan will still keep doing what they're doing for the time being. I don't think they've got much of a choice but no, it's uh, that, uh, I won't call it a day of reckoning, but certainly a day where we're going to go and find out what QE has done in terms of asset allocation across particularly financial markets will be very interesting. Mm-hmm. It's certainly going to be
1: one to watch, and we will, of course, be tracking it um, on the show from time to time. Uh, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest on the show this week has been Warren Hogan. Warren, great having you back. Thank you very much, Paul. David, it's been a pleasure. You can find us on iTunes where you can rate us and leave us a review. We're on the web at businessinsider.com.au or on Twitter at BIAUS. You'll also find us all on the Twitter individually. Uh, I'm Paul Colgan. I've been here with David Scott. The show is produced by Rick Salter. We'll catch you next time.
0: This podcast was delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalised packaging. For more info, go to auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.